Hi everybody, welcome along to this special preview snippet of our monthly Conversations interview podcast. In this episode we are talking to Deacon Harold Burke Sievers. He is a deacon, a former police officer, a former law enforcement trainer, a former Catholic monk who is based in the United States and uh, who also happens to be a fan of Iron Maiden. It's a whole lot going on in this episode. You definitely don't want to miss this one. If you want the full episode, so you're just going to get a snippet here in this little preview, but if you want the full 90-minute episode, then all you need to do is go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia and become a $5 monthly patron. That gives you access to this episode and all of the other exclusive patrons-only content that we publish every single week. So patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. In the meantime, enjoy this special preview snippet from our conversation with Deacon Harold Burke Sievers. Welcome to Conservations, the podcast which got its name by literally combining the words conservative and conversations, which is exactly what happens on this show every month. Each episode, we host a conversation with at least one other guest where we go in-depth on a topic or hear about their experiences on this journey we all share together called life. The aim of this show is to foster and promote dialogue which cultivates goodness, truth and beauty and in doing so, unpacks the richness of the authentic conservative tradition. My hope is that you'll find these conservative conversations intellectually engaging and enriching and that they will draw you ever more deeply into an authentic, truly flourishing, and more meaningfully lived human experience. In this month's episode, we are going to be talking with Deacon Harold Burke Seavers. Known around the world as the dynamic deacon, Harold Burke Seavers is one of the most sought-after speakers in the Catholic Church today. He is a powerful and passionate evangelist and speaker whose no-nonsense approach to living and proclaiming the faith is as challenging as it is inspiring. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics and Business Administration, along with a Master's degree in Theological Studies, and he co-hosts a national weekly radio broadcast in the United States, as well as hosting and co-hosting several popular series on the Eternal Word television network. Oh, and did I mention that he's a fan of Iron Maiden? Well, you'll find out more about that during our conversation in this episode. So without any further ado, let's have this important conservative conversation with Deacon Harold Burke Sievers. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Now, let's talk about this issue of law enforcement. And uh, I mean, we're going to talk about r- racial issues because you've written a book about this. And I re- I'm really intrigued. I'm, I'm very interested in this. Um, but the question of law enforcement, just something you said just before, got me thinking because I've, I've had this theory for a while as an outside observer who does not live in America. But my sense is that um, there has been an increasing militarization of American law enforcement, and that is really creating a sort of a problem in some areas. Am I correct in that, or is it uh, is it something else altogether that's really driving a lot of what we're seeing? Yeah. So what I think is going on is when I went through the academy and then at, at teaching at the academy, is that they don't d- uh, train or test for bias. 
So, for example, uh, you take a psychological test, you do all this kind of testing, physical fitness test, shooting tests. Uh, you test your fitness to be able to do the job. Mm-hmm. But one thing they don't train for or to learn to detect is bias. So, mm-hmm. for example, in traffic stop school, um, when they learn, when they teach you how to do traffic stops, you're supposed to treat every person motorist the same way. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, if someone comes in with a with a preconceived uh, racial bias or, yeah. or 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 a racial prejudice, um, or is just outrightly racist, that is going to play into how they do that traffic stop. Sure. See, so what we have to do is find ways to detect that. Okay, we we see this within this person and be able to deal with that and, and uh, um, you know train the person out of that way of thinking or kick them out. Yeah. So <laughs> if, it's, if it's too ingrained, if they're just a hardcore hillbilly racist yeah, or something, you just they, can't work they with need it. To, they need to go. Yeah, exactly. D- does that, I, I mean, America is a melting pot of races. So I'm assuming that's not just black and white, that, that potentially could be people stopping Asian drivers, all sorts of things, right? Potentially, but Correct. probably uh, primarily uh, black traffic stops would be assumed probably by people who have a bias to be criminal yeah, right? is that yeah what it's, it's yeah. not the traffic stop thing is it's what happens during that stop and yeah and the shootings that have been have been taking place and things like that um why aren't they using less than lethal uh mm. methods and things like that and some of them are not justified at all shooting like the the one incident where the, the young man was running away and he got shot in the back i mean come on you can't yeah. do that you yeah. know um or some of the the, uh, the other things i've seen it just makes your stomach turn even the george floyd thing you yeah. know i was watching that video and I was literally yelling, get the hell off his neck. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, the thing is, look, no matter what drugs he was on, what his past, that's nothing to do with how you're treating him in that moment. Yeah. So obviously he was causing a problem in the back of the car. They took him out. Um, but he was on the ground. He was cuffed. And yeah. why was the guy kneeling on his neck for 10 minutes? That makes no sense. Yeah. You, 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 we're not trained to do that. No yeah. police officer is trained to do that. Yeah. You know, so uh, so the question is, why was he doing it? And the other officers standing around allowing that to happen. Yeah. They should have stopped and they should have said something. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and that. So I found it as a law enforcement officer problematic because what that does, that puts a, a, a huge stain on all of us who put our lives mm-hmm. on the line every day for people we don't know. Um, and, and so but, but that becomes a picture of what law enforcement is. Yeah. And, and that's just the, 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 the wrong picture. Yeah, it, it, it really struck me particularly because my father, who died a few years ago, um, a beautiful man, but he suffered from schizophrenia for most of his adult life. And there was one incident I remember just before my 12th birthday, um, and he'd gone off his medication. He thought, God has healed me, and he was sure he was healed. He wasn't. And he woke up one morning and thought he was the king of Ireland a couple of weeks later. And uh, so the police had to be called to commit him for a psychiatric assessment and get him back on medication. And uh, the police arrived and knocked on the door and he shut the door first, then he shut it a second time and then he punched the first officer and the three tumbled back down behind him. My my father had been a farmer, big guy. And the next minute they're in there and he was in a state where he, with schizophrenia, you get delusional. And so they got a, a police officer trying to one each arm, trying to bring his arms together to cuff him and one swinging off his, uh, off his neck and pulled out a billy club and... They tried to use that at one point. He just calmly turned around and said, please, would you stop doing that? I don't like that. And, and they got really worried. And then he saw my mother and dropped his hands and they cuffed him. But they stopped, right? They got him under restraint and then it stopped at that point. It didn't yes. carry on, you know? That's right. And I remember once, um, uh, so I was a police chief on a, on, a, on a university 
and uh, a young man who was on some meth or some some kind mm -hmm. of drug walked into the the girls' uh, dormitory and said he wanted to have sex with the coeds. Mm. And so I had installed panic buttons underneath the desks. And so mm. the, the button was pushed, the alarm went to our office, and I heard the call on the radio, officers respond, I didn't respond, okay, they'll take care of it. Next I know they're calling for backup. And they're describing this kid about 19 years old, scrawny. I'm like, why didn't he back up to deal with a kid like this? Yeah. So I get out there with the sergeant, and he's throwing my guys off of him. I'm like, and he can't, he's tall, he's skinny. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. What's, and so he was on something. So like four, it took four of us wow. to restrain him. And we did have to, I mean, I did have to kneel on him and stuff like that to, to, get, to get him under control. And, why do we, and that kind of action happens uh, so that the person is not a danger to themselves, a danger to you, or a danger to anyone else around them. And once the person is secure, everything stops. So yeah. I'm thinking it took maybe 11 or 12 seconds for four of us to get this young man cuffed so that he was no longer in danger to anybody around him. And what once we did that, everything else stopped. Do you think fear and adrenaline can kick in? You know, they're, they're like shooting someone in the back. Is that is that uh, a combination of bad training and other things? Or is it someone who freaks out and doesn't know when to stop? Well, see, someone like that shouldn't even be on the street. Yeah, I can. You know, you got, you got to screen people <laughs> like that. You, you <laughs> yeah. can't just take... Because, yeah, you have to make very quick decisions mm. in a very short amount of time. And mm -hmm. things can escalate very, very quickly. You know, you think you have a situation under control, and next thing you know, the person's lunging at you, or they're, or they're, uh, you know, they're 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 reaching for something. You know, because you're always trying to look at people's hands. And yeah. so, when people don't comply, they, you know, that raises up another level of of, of awareness and, and danger in your mind as an officer. Because your job is to go home to be with your your kids and yeah. your wife, or if you're a female officer, your husband. You know, when you when when you get off of shift. And so, yeah, your adrenaline is going, but but you're supposed to be learned to, to control that and to think, yeah. you know. Um, yes, your your adrenaline is going right now, but you have to think in the situation, um, and, and and that's why what I did, I, I practiced a lot or trained a lot of uh, my officers in verbal de-escalation. Uh, you know, yeah, recognizing yeah. that yes, this person right now that we're dealing with um, is 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 uh, frantic, they're angry, but your job is to first listen. Yeah. You know, because as they're talking and you're listening, because they're they're not angry at you, they're angry at the situation. But yeah. now you're representing an intervention into this situation. Now in their mind, you're a problem. So yeah. if you just say, "Look, I'm just here to help. Tell me what's going on," and just listen to them, allow them to get their thing out. And and, and as they're talking, they're coming down. They're coming down. They're coming down. And now they're in a situation where you can deal with whatever issues going on. Now, if the person is mentally uh, uh, has some kind of mental issue. Yeah. Or is on some kind of a drug, or or or, or is uh, drunk, that makes things a lot more complicated. Then it becomes a safety issue, you know. Uh, you want to secure the person first, and then have a conversation with them, if if possible. Yeah, I, um, I have an uncle who was, uh, he's now deceased, but he was a police officer in New Zealand. And um, so I, I sort of had uh, insight through him about, and his entire career was law enforcement. And in New Zealand, it's just so different. Um, he was part of something we have here called um, the Armed Defender Squad. And it's like, I guess the equivalent of SWAT team, but you're not full time. You get called up, a regular police officer gets trained, special training, and then when they need you with an armed incident, that you get called up into that situation, and um, uh, and he did work on the drug squad and the uh, homicide squad here as well. But one of the things I remember him telling me about was an incident where they had to he had to sit for four hours beneath a negotiator, 
um, trying to talk a man down with a shotgun um, who was in a domestic situation and he was threatening to kill himself. And for four hours he had a, a sight on this guy and he said the whole time, it was the worst four hours of his life. He said, because if he raised the gun, I had to shoot him. And he yeah. said, I just didn't want to do that. I yeah. did not want to do that. And it was, as, to me, it struck me, I remember that story and seeing some of the stuff in, in America going on around policing and the, the sort of, I feel like the that us versus them mentality in some cases is, it just ramps the stakes up even more, right? Yeah, and you don't see the humanity in the person, mm. you know, and, and that's that's why I always try to, to recognize, you know, you don't want to be stupid and keep your guard down so much that you're not, yeah, aware that yeah. you're that you're putting yourself in danger. So you we walk up to a car. Uh, to me, it doesn't matter who was driving, what color they are. They're, you know, I had probable cause to pull them over. And of mm. course, the first thing I'm gonna do is 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 see where their hands are. Are they reaching for anything? If they're that that kind of thing, because hands can kill. That that's the one of the first things you learn yeah. in law enforcement. So I, but I try I try to treat every single person the same way. Of course, yeah. people don't like being pulled over. Right. So I'm not I'm not trying. So I give them a reason, you know, um, like some officers will say, you know, what did I do wrong? Driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. Yeah. yeah but why would you stop me? Uh, uh, give me that. Uh, OK, I'll tell them why I stopped. You know, and OK, can, can I please have your driver's license, registration, insurance? Here's why I stopped you. And let me just go back and, and, and check things out. If there's a guy, you'll just give you a warning or something like that. You know, just try to not be a, a jerk. You know, yeah. uh, but again, you have to have your P's and Q's up. You know, the person, if they're reaching for something, if they look nervous, if they're not following directions, if they look like they're impaired, you know, you, you have all these things going on. You have to make a judgment because what you're trying to do is to help keep other people safe. Mm-hmm. Because if the person should not behind the, be behind the wheel, then it's your job to make sure that person's not a danger to anyone else. It's uh, I, one thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I, I find it... Um, well, I feel like there's a false dichotomy that often happens whenever you have these questions around police shootings and police use of force, particularly in the American context. And it feels like sometimes the people who rush to the aid of the police don't help either, just like people who want to blame all police, for, you know, they're always at fault. The flip side is people who try and defend the indefensible. Do you do you think that's a fair sort of assessment of what happens yeah. sometimes? People, I mean, the commentators who feel they have to defend the police at any cost. Right, right. And you have to look objectively at it as well. Mm. Like I said, I was highly upset at some of these incidents because the officers were there. There was no uh, defense at all for the actions that they Mm. took. There's no way you can defend it. So you can't Mm. defend the officer. You know, because the action they took was ridiculous um, and was was uncalled for. And people got hurt or killed because of the uh, and they were and they were prosecuted. You know, they, they were they were fired and, and stripped of their law enforcement authority and they were brought to court and they were found guilty and rightly so mm. and rightly so. So you have to look at this on a case by case basis. If there, and if there is something, a pattern, something that looks systemic, which, again, that's why I think we have to train. Uh, and I try to identify bias yeah. at the academy level, because someone like that cannot be out on the street uh, yeah, <laughs> trying yeah. to deal with people when they have a racial bias in their mind, well, this I'm just going to deal with black people this way. I'm going to deal with this person this way. And no, you have to treat every single person the same. So, a probable cause for not, well, this, uh, why'd you pull me over? Were you in the wrong neighborhood? What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, what does yeah, that yeah. even mean? <laughs> yeah. I have a right yeah. to be wherever I want. If I'm not, do- yeah, I'm not yeah. doing anything illegal, I'm not doing anything yeah. wrong. What do you mean I'm in the wrong? Ne- That's not a reason to pull anyone over. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. Uh, tell me um, before we, uh, this is a, probably a good segue to start talking about race, but before we get into that, I know there's been a, a Supreme Court case around um, Harvard admissions and uh, 
um, uh, affirmative action. Do, you often hear that a bit around law enforcement and other professions. Do you feel that that's affected the, the law enforcement profession as well, just well, in general? Well, here's like, the like, thing. I, not, not along racial lines, but just in general. Is there a, a risk of lowering of standards and, and, and from that as well? Well, hopefully not. Not at all. Mm. In mm. fact, what some uh, departments have done, they've up actually up the education requirement because they yeah, want okay. they want men and women who are able to think you mm. know and and the thing is the more educated they are the more you're able to to think clearly and discern what's going on in a particular situation um uh so the supreme court decision you know and the thing is this you know i i'm not a huge fan of affirmative action in the sense that well we have to lower the standards so that we can allow these other people no we have to we have to educate people to rise to meet the standard yeah. Or yeah. exceed it. I, yeah. I don't want I don't want someone to hire me because I'm black. What the hell is that? I yeah. want someone to hire me because <laughs> I am the best person for that position. Yeah. I'm the most qualified person for that position. And if you don't want me there because I'm black, the hell with you. I'll so, go work so, for somebody else. So do you feel that as a black man, do you feel that the sort of the tokenism of it? And so it seems to me that you sort of see that as like an insult. Like, well, do you not think I can make Yeah, it? of course. It's a slap in yeah. the face. Yeah. yeah. You, what you're saying is I am not capable to reach this standard. Therefore, mm. we have to lower the standard so you can meet it. No. Mm. We have to be able to educate people to meet the standard. And yeah. So what happens? The schools are failing our young people. So we have to make the schools better. You know, we we have to, for example, we have the, the, the one of the big controversies is the voucher system. So if you yeah. want to send your kid to a Catholic school or to another private school where the education is much better, um, some states won't allow you to do that because all your tax money is going toward a, a public education system, which is what? Which is failing our children, which is teaching uh, transgender stuff in kindergarten, yeah. which yeah. is pushing an agenda. I don't want my yeah. kids to be part of that. So yeah. let me take the tax money and put it toward something that's going to really educate them and bring them opportunities that I may not have had a, as, the, as their parent. That's going to give them opportunities to su succeed in life and become uh, a productive citizens of, for the common good. That's what, that's what should be happening. Before we, um, I agree with you, by the way, there. <laughs> um, and, and I'm saying that as a father of five kids, like, you know, your kids are like, you, you, you'd die for them, you know. And there's enough ideologues out there trying to <laughs> intervene in ways that are not healthy. Um, tell me, um, uh, before we really get into, uh, I, I want to talk about the racial issues in this book that you've written. What are your experiences like? Um, because you're someone, you are black, you're black American. It's sort of the um, the world feels like it focuses right now on racial issues in America, all around the globe. We hear about it a lot. What, what What's your take as someone who grew up in the States and as someone who's, I guess at times, maybe has had to grapple with those issues? What, what, yeah, what do you, so, how would you describe America? Yeah, so I was born in Barbados, actually. Um, okay. we, we immigrated to the United States, but... Uh, and, and lived in the state of New Jersey and mm. uh, was you know, cat, graduate, uh, educated in Catholic grade school, high school, uh, university and graduate school, uh, Catholic institutions. Um, my mom was the first Catholic in our family. She, she was a convert as a teenager. And I'm the oldest child, so I'm the first baptized as Catholic. Wow. So and, and my mom, you know, she was a, a nurse. But um, as far as the faith, she wasn't very well educated on the faith. But what I saw was her witness, right? When my dad mm. left our family and I helped my mom take over, I saw the sacrifices that she made. I saw the meaning of, 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 live, uh, of, of Christ crucified and, yeah, and, 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 and love through her. I mean, she, mm. I'm, those are back in the days where the nurses wore uh, the white outfits with the white starch hat and the white yeah. shoes. And I remember my mom 
going to work with holes in her shoes and runs in her stockings because we the kids we needed stuff so wow. she sacrificed for and i saw that and so for her education was the way out you know yeah. so she always pushed education she worked so much overtime to pay the tuition to send us to a catholic institution so we can create opportunities that she never had you know yeah. or and, and and so i never forgot that and I never forgot the sacrifices that she made. And so she would always teach us to treat every single per person with dignity and respect. Yeah. And so I grew up in a black neighborhood, but I was Catholic. So we had to go across town to go to church <laughs> at the white. <laughs> wow. so, so, the, so the school I went to was, you know, there weren't many black kids in the school. There weren't many black families in the parish. Yeah. And it wasn't an issue for me. I mean, I was in Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout in that parish. Yeah. And, um, you know, we just, we just all got along. It was just... Back then, it wasn't a lot of that whole racial thing. So I just learned to appreciate everybody for who they are, you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not. We see what happens is this: you're not born racist, unlike yeah. what critical race theory teaches. You're not born you're, you're, you're a racist. What? Because you see why? Anecdotally, you see little kids playing on a playground, right? Four year old, yeah. five year old. They don't. They don't I'm not going to play with you because you're Chinese. I mean. They, no one, no kid does that. They all, they're all playing together, right? Yeah. So what happens over time? You learn prejudice. You yeah. watch television. You hear jokes from your parents. You social media. You hear your friends talking, and you, you you see the way people and cultures are depicted in these different arenas. And you come to make judgments about someone, even though you don't know them. You start to make judgments about someone. So, for example, you see if you all you see on television is that you know. Uh, black people in neighborhoods wearing hoodies are dangerous. Mm. When you go out to the real world, you see a black person with a hoodie. Oh my goodness, they're dangerous because I saw. Yeah. And you don't know where that comes from, but you're you see you're being taught. You're being yeah. taught that. So my whole thing is if you can learn it, you can unlearn it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I I, mean, I grew up in a very poor family, and um and and a what we call in New Zealand a low decile school, uh, poor poorer sort of areas. And um, it was interesting to me um, as I got older and in my career and meeting people who hadn't grown up on my side of the tracks who were white and they had all these assumptions about people who were not white in New Zealand because I'd never even been around them to experience and understand it. They just, it, like what you're saying about stereotypes and things you see in the media and, and the assumptions that people just, uh, they consume them and they absorb them without even realizing it's happening often. Yeah, th that's right, and, and so we we carry these prejudices into into life and, in, and into the real world, and so um, you know when when you're uh, uh, applying for a job, like you know you're, someone's sitting across from you. For, for example, uh, I, I remember um, you know if someone's applying for a job in my department, I would always be the last interview. You know, because okay. they, they go mm. they go on ride alongs and see how things work. And, you know, then the, the, the sergeant and all the people, they would kind of assess the person, then bring it to me. And I would decide whether I want to interview the person or not. And um, <laughs> someone comes in there sitting across from you. And this uh, particular person um, uh, was from a, a background, uh, a religious tradition that that doesn't see black people in the best light. You know, okay. so so I said, hey, you know, um, it, it, would you have problems working for someone like me? You know, and they hesitated on their answer, <laughs> and I said, okay, nope, they're done. <laughs> because and if you have to hesitate about that, then like that, that again, it raises a question in my mind: Are you going to be able to take orders from me? Are you going to be able to follow my yeah. lead in the way I want? I want this department run. You know, um, if you're if you're if you're here 
because you don't want to because usually unis are safer environments than working in a municipality right yeah. working on the streets dealing with like bad people every single day here you're dealing with yeah. students and my attitude was these students are coming to this university to get a quality education they're mm-hmm. going to learn in the classroom well their interactions with us they're going to learn from the classroom of real life they're yeah. going to make mistakes. So you have these 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are considered adults, and their adult clothes are, are too big for them. And yeah. so they're going to spend these next several years learning to fit into their new adult clothes. So when they make mistakes, we have to hold them accountable and, yeah. and teach them that right now, you're in, you, yes, you, you made a mistake, you messed up. It's better to tell the truth and be yeah. honest about what happened and accept the consequences for that action. It's better to do that right now in this uh, environment than to not learn that lesson and then make a mistake later in life that's going to cost you a job, a career, a reputation, a family. You see? So what, what I'm my officers, I said, we're teachers in the classroom of real life. Yeah. And that's what I want our young our young people to experience with us. Yeah, the school of virtue, right? Re- yes, really exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, um, it, it seems to me when I look at America and the race issue, um, like America has its own unique complications. Uh, every nation does in this regard. Um, you know, things like antebellum slavery is and and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and, and the civil rights struggle. It's actually still fairly recent. Um, but I look at America and two things strike me. Number one is it feels like at the moment we are exporting American racial issues that are unique to America into other countries where they don't actually exist, but we're acting as if all of those issues are in every country and and that's not helping. And number two is um, it, it, it sort of feels to me like, and I'd love to hear your take on this, I don't know, it, it, even something you said earlier, it feels to me like America has sort of gone backwards in race relations, like it... As someone who, I mean, I was a young kid, I was born in the 70s, and as someone through the 80s and 90s, it felt like America was starting to progress. There were there was a sort of a genuine dialogue and a balance coming in, but then it's gone, swung wildly into areas where it doesn't feel like it's um, progressing forward. It's gone backwards. No, I would absolutely agree with that. I think it has gone backwards. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, things were progressing when you had um, uh, figures like, like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Okay, Uh, and and so here's here's what's happened since he was assassinated. um, There really hasn't been anyone to take his place. Right. Because what did he do? He gathered the people around himself, black, white, no matter what, because it was the 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 ideology that he espoused. It was the the peaceful way that he said, let's enter the dialogue. Um, And and, and, but you have nobody like that now. So it's created a a vacuum and a void. And so with no one to fill that void in, in the spirit uh, and, and, uh, and ideology of Martin Luther King, you have all of these pseudo uh, cultural ideologies and individuals and, and uh, institutions that are, but, and, and their whole underlying thing is not racial healing. It, they have a, an underlying agenda, which is being carried under the facade yeah. Of of rate of racial justice and equality, but it's really a, a Trojan horse. What's inside is a completely different agenda, which has nothing to do with that. But they're using it as a vehicle to move another agenda forward, which is fairly consistent. And I think let, let's talk about that because I know in in the um, pricey to your book, it, it sort of makes a distinction um, I, I, that I read there between critical race theory, 
uh, and Black Lives Matter. And obviously underlying that, there is the Marxist thing that's just sitting there boiling away beneath the surface as well as part of those movements. But you make a distinction between those two. Tell me tell me about why that distinction is there um, in, in the in the review of the book, yeah. So there, there's a so the the book is not about those things. I mean, I know what's mm. going to happen. I told um, Ignatius Press this uh, when I was when I submitted the manuscript. I said, look, everybody, when this book comes out, everybody's going to want me to talk about Black Lives Matter and and critical race theory. <laughs> the book is called. Building a civilization of love, a Catholic response to racism. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. And 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 those things now I originally wanted to put those in one chapter. Yeah. Um, but the thing is when I started learning what critical race theory is, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so huge. I, I have to give each their yeah. individual chapter. And the only reason I even mention those things, because there are different um uh there are different elements within the church, there are different people in the church who are trying to bring these ideologies in and say, hey, this is helpful in this discussion. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'm not really sure what these things are about. Let me learn yeah. and let me assess objectively. Because yeah, well, maybe there is something here. I, I, I don't yeah. want to enter into polemics and then, well, this writer says that it's bad and that writer says it's bad. Yeah. Well, let me see for myself. So what I did was I bought the books uh, yeah. of the people who develop like critical race theory. So Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Janine Stefanik, Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah. And I read what they have to say for themselves about what critical race theory is. Yeah. I, I bought, well, not the books, but I, I read a lot of the literature. And in fact, there was a, a young woman who, who wrote about uh, uh, Catholicism and the Black Lives Matter movement, how they're actually, uh, you know, uh, they dovetail beautifully together. You know, it's yeah. just a, Black Lives Matter is just an extension of Catholic social teaching. She wrote a book <laughs> yeah. about that. So yeah. I said, okay, okay, well, hold on. Let, let me take a look at this, look objectively. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something here. I did the same thing with liberation theology. So uh, <laughs> the, the, common, the common thread in all three is this, is this Marxist ideology. So let me mm -hmm. explain critical race. So critical race theory um, developed from critical legal theory of the 1970s, which mm -hmm. looked at uh, critical legal theory that even though the laws on race have changed, it hasn't really changed the attitude or the situation with regard to race. So yeah. just by changing laws doesn't mean you change atti uh, attitudes. And so there, and, that, and that's Derek Bell and Co., isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, that's yeah. correct. And so yeah. that necessarily is not bad in itself. Right, mm -hmm. but but the way they go about bringing about the change—that's what the issue is. Now, critical legal theory comes out of critical theory from the 1920s, um, which comes out of Karl Marx and, mm -hmm. interestingly, not Engels but Freud, with yeah, di okay. with dialectical materialism, yeah. which comes from Hegel's uh, 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 dialectic. So Hegelian dialectic says that there's a thesis. Right, and then there's a and there's a, a, a counter antithesis, and the tension, conflict, and struggle between thesis and antithesis leads to a new synthesis. Yeah. So Marx took that along with Freud and tried to apply it to to the to uh, not hard sciences but soft sciences, Psych mm. Freud to psychology and uh uh uh, uh, uh and then um. Uh, Marx to economics and 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 social and sociology and, and history itself, right? And, and each, his, each epoch is that struggle being resolved. Yeah. So his dialectical materialism says, okay, mm. you have the bourgeois on one side, mm. the proletariat on on the other side, and the tension, conflict, the struggle between bourgeois and proletariat leads to socialist communism. You know, mm. so 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 that kind of thinking has carried itself forward into critical race theory today. Mm. 
where mm-hmm. the idea is in order to affect change, you have to have tension, conflict, and struggle. My yeah. argument in the book is that's not the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Awesome, and, no. and the thing is, they, they, critical race theory has nothing to do with faith. They didn't mm. build their, their theory on faith. They, they mm. don't approach it from a faith perspective. They could care less mm. about faith at all. So I'm mm. thinking, why are we even bringing this into the conversation when it's not meant to even be there? Yeah. We're trying to yeah. force something into a position where it doesn't belong. And even though, yeah. again, that's why I read the books of the people who wrote it. They're not interested in faith. Yeah. And neither is the Black Lives Matter movement. They're not interested in faith. So so we have this, okay, and, and not, so even that's okay, maybe there's something here we can take and, and adopt and, and incorporate it into a faith perspective, but we just can't, at least not right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Two, two things that really strike me as a big difference, as I was actually telling a group this the other day, is um, that Christianity um, isn't actually into revolution. We go on mission. We want, we want to see the world improve. We do it through that mission of self-giving love rather than tearing everything down. Um, and uh, yeah, also the, the sense in which um, Marx makes everything political. Yeah. Everything is political, even your relationship to God. Like like the church becomes a tool of oppression. And and um, th- there's, uh, in actual fact, um, I would argue we're not, not everything is political, nor should it be, because that just leads to tribalism and everything else, the, the, all the awful excesses we've seen over the last hundred years or so. But everything is definitely relational. We're beings made in the image of the Trinity. We are relational. And if like that's Dr. Martin Luther King, from my perspective. He sees the common humanity. It's our relationship first. Then we use that to launch that's into exactly, the That's exactly, that's the point of my book. Mm. That's the whole point of my book. That, mm. that the, we, we can't go about trying to change structures and mm. organizations, but without first changing people. Yeah. Right, because the people are the ones who make up these organizations and structures. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. and, and so how do we try to destroy the structure? We try to destroy the structure by the, the destroying ideology, yeah. um, and imposing your ideology into some place where it doesn't belong, and trying to force people along. So, f- for example, in the critical race uh, definite critical race theory definition of race, it has nothing to do with biological or character or, or biological or physical characteristics or distinctions within a species. So it's not about uh, black, white, Hispanic, Native American, Native uh, uh, New Zealand, or anything like that. And it, yeah. it's not about Italian, New Zealand, uh, uh, Aussie, French, right? Yeah. For yeah. them, race is a social construct. Right. And, and where the predominant race exercises authority, dominion and control over the lesser races. That's their definition of race, yeah. uh, of, what, of what racism is. <laughs> so, again, yeah. uh, 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 domination, not looking at the human element. Mm. So the, the, the and so what I the argument I make in my book and when I talk about the Catholic response to racism, the number one, the very first thing that we have to do is exactly what you said. We have to be able to see the image and likeness of God in the person standing in front of us. And mm. I did read Martin Luther King. I mean, I, I now we all know who Martin Luther King is, right? But I never, be honest, I never really read a lot of his stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I read his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. I read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Oh, I love that. I've got that on my shelf. And I was it. like, this guy yeah. gets it, man. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. got, and that's why he was able to bring people together of yeah. all races because they got the message, which basically was the gospel. So yeah. I'm not trying to say in this book, I'm trying to fill that void to be new Martin Luther King. I'm not saying that. I'm just a, a, a simple Catholic evangelist. What yeah. I'm trying to do is say, if we really, uh, here's the thing. I think the church can take the lead in this issue. 
Because let's be yeah. real, the church always comes from behind, right? We yeah. we uh, so about the, in the United States, the so-called redefinition of marriage, which didn't, which didn't define anything, because God determines what marriage is, not the state. <laughs> That's right. And, yeah. and, but when they when that happened, what did we do? We said nothing, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a few bishops said some things, but they really didn't fight it that hard. Mm-hmm. And when the law, when the Supreme Court made the decision, then they started issuing statements. It's too yeah. late. Yeah. So I I think this issue of race for once. The Catholic yeah. Church can take the lead. So for once, people can say, hey, look what the Catholic Church is doing. Let's yeah. follow their lead instead of, oh, let's come, we're, we're coming from behind. I think part of the problem is because the sex abuse scandal, a lot of the moral credibility um, yeah. of the bishops have been undermined. And so they're afraid yeah. to, to move forward in, in, in issues like this that are considered controversial because they say, you know, well, our, you know, we have no moral standing anymore. Yeah. But the gospel does. <laughs> so yeah, instead right. of focusing on, that's why I don't talk about reparations, all these other things. It's not the gospel. Uh, yeah. Let's let's first do what St. Teresa of Calcutta did. See Jesus standing, uh, Christ standing in the person in front of you. Yeah. I, for me, it's what's, what I find really interesting and frustrating about it all is um, I see it sitting in a bigger cultural crisis in a sense, particularly in the West. Like, when um, Kimberly Crenshaw writes her essay in 89 about intersectionality and yeah. th- there's truth in this, what she's seeing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, those black women at General Motors who are last to be laid off. And and so there is a, a disadvantage there. There's something that's unequal. The solution's the problem. And, and w- what she's doing is she's seeing issues within a culture that is now more and more embracing like enlightenment liberalism. And so, which liberalism tr- wants to keep the fruit of Christianity, but it doesn't want to tend to the tree. And so all of a sudden, um, it's powerless when Marxism comes along and says, well, we've got the solution because we've all been told to be liberals, keep Christianity out of the public square, you know, um, and, and uh, it's all about the individual subject making up their own truth for themselves. And here comes this uh, group of um, political advocates and activists who are claiming that they've actually got a real answer, and, and that's Marxism. And we're very vulnerable, I feel, to it because liberalism, which we've all sort of embraced, leaves us very vulnerable because it doesn't give us an overriding religious concept of reality or who we are. Right, and so you start to divide, uh, uh, define and shape reality into your own image. So instead of yep. seeing being made in the image and likeness of God, we're making God into mm. our own image and likeness. Yep. Like, the, the, like her idea of intersectionality. So, so mm. what defines you, right? So in critical race mm. theory, so what defines you is uh, I am a white, uh, lesbian, uh, uh, democratic uh, yeah. you know, uh, teacher or what I mean. So that's what defines you. It's a social construct, yeah. you know, and people, what, what, why do, how do you define yourself? I am a son of the living God. Yeah, awesome. That's what defines me. People like mm. people say to me, you're a black Catholic. I said, no, I'm not. I'm a Catholic <laughs> yeah. who's black. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the difference? You're denying your black identity. I'm like, no, when I stand before Jesus Christ, when I die, he's not going to ask me how black I am. <laughs> Did you pick yeah. up your cross and follow me? Did you awesome. multiply the talents that I gave you for my yeah. glory? Where's my tenfold, fiftyfold, hundredfold return on the investment I made in you? So does that mean I, I deny my black? No, I love my Caribbean heritage. I, I love our food. I love our music. I still speak our dialect. I love yeah. everything about that. But unless I am able to see the image and likeness of God in you, I, I can't appreciate all the other beautiful things that because everything else becomes a caricature, yeah. you see? But I have to see you first the way God sees you and appreciate that and all the other gifts that you bring 
now I'm able to uh, appreciate that much more better because now I'm able to see you the way God sees you. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this preview snippet from our latest episode of Conservations. If you want to hear the full 90-minute episode with Deacon Harold Burke-Sievers, just become a $5 monthly patron at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Not only will you be supporting all of our important work, but you will also get access to our exclusive patrons-only content that we publish every single week. That's patreon.com forward slash Left Foot Media. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you on next month's episode of Conservations for another one of our conservative conversations with a new and interesting guest.